not even at a personal level, but as a society, when you abandon God, you become inflamed with selfish sensuality, and that runs against the way that God and love created you. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 32. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of God. Father, we thank you for uh, the illumination of Scripture by the Holy Spirit, who is, of course, our teacher. And we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would instruct us today in this difficult and dark text. Would you bring application to our lives as those who have been called out of darkness into wonderful light? And Lord, allow us to be well-equipped to go into a fallen, depraved culture and to bring a banner of truth, to bring light and hope and life where there's death, despair, and darkness. So Lord, would you work through this text in a way that our lives are radically transformed, where we have a message in the midst of a culture that would have an opposite message. Lord, give us a truth and hope today. We love you and we commit this time to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, residents in Colorado were shocked to walk out into their front yard, hearing a loud crash, and then some of them literally walking into their yard, finding large engine debris from a Boeing 777 in their front yard. What had happened was a United Airlines flight had taken off from Denver on its way to Honolulu Saturday of last week with 231 passengers and 10 crew members on board. But what had happened was just a few minutes into the flight, one of the engines had failed and actually exploded and it forced the pilot who had taken off to turn back and land safely at Denver International Airport. And miraculously, no one was injured on, uh, on the flight or by any of the falling debris that landed literally in pieces around the neighborhoods uh, surrounding Denver. But one of the passengers who was on the flight after the traditional uh, kind of announcements that they do on the flight and the, the flight attendants do kind of the song and dance, 
He heard an explosion and he literally, which is something you don't want to hear on a plane, and he rolled up his window and took this photograph outside of his window. Right outside of his window. That is not something you want to see uh, up in, you know, 10 minutes after taking off on a flight. Uh, And so the reason I'm starting out our study this morning with this news report is because I want to illustrate something that's important and foundational for our time here in Romans chapter 1 this morning. You see, on Saturday, it didn't matter how much experience the pilots had. It didn't matter how expensive or popular the, the particular airplane was. It didn't matter how influential or prominent United Airlines was as a company. None of those things were going to change the fact that that plane was not going to make it to Hawaii. A plane with that sort of engine failure is on a rendezvous with certain destruction. Now, people who weren't on that plane, who were down on the ground, could see the damage and could observe the plane literally coming apart. And some people on the plane, it was re- you could say it was revealed to them as they're on the plane that I'm on a defective plane and I need to... I need to be rescued. We need to turn this plane around for rescue. But for a large majority of the people on the plane, a vast majority, as the plane is literally falling apart around them, they were busy being entertained by the screens in front of them with a movie or a television show. Others had flipped open their laptop and were getting work done on the open tray tables. And still others had fallen asleep expecting what they thought was going to be a nice, relaxing and joyful ride to Hawaii, unaware that unless the plane turned around, they would certainly be destroyed. Now, I'm, I'm not telling you that story to inject terror and fear the next time you go on a United Airlines flight or a Southwest flight, <clears throat> but I tell you this because this is an apt picture of what is happening to the world around us today. The world we live in is like that plane. It's on a collision course with certain doom. And unless the course of your life is not interrupted by the gospel, you are certain to bear the wrath of God. We continue our series in Romans chapter 1 today with a sermon titled, All Manner of Unrighteousness. It's coming right out of the text. And remember, we set this up last week. We kind of warned you that this was the black velvet backdrop at the diamond store, looking at the depravity of man and the wrath of God, which kind of illustrates, or you could say sets to light the brilliance of the diamond of God's gospel of grace. And last week we saw the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness by men and women who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And we learned last week when you take the truth of God and you hold it down, you suppress it, it's an unnatural and it's, it's a very difficult task that leads to substituting. So you suppress the truth, then you will substitute the truth. And we saw how man does that. Man will exchange God's glory and he'll exchange that for idolatry. He'll take creator and cash him in for creation. And what happens then is it puts man who God put above all creation now bowing down to creation even though we've been given dominion over it. And so we saw last week that it is God's mercy that breaks in and intervenes in our lives to prevent us from having our own way. And so it's actually God's wrath that kind of lets go and allows you to have what you think you really want. So as we learned last week, mercy says, thy will be done. But God's wrath is when he says, no, 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 thy will be done. And so we learn that all people in this world, they're not like neutral. 
All people are condemned because of the general revelation that God has provided in creation. So there's no one alive today who is without excuse. All mankind is in one of two camps. Either you're worshiping God or you're not worshiping God, which by definition is idolatry. You're worshiping an idol. And so today, what we're going to see is this continues to unravel. You suppress the truth, you hold it down, you substitute the truth, and then we fall into subverting the truth. We're going to see how man descends to this final step of wickedness, which is this. It's to abandon the image of God in man and woman by corrupting our identity, gender, and even sexuality. If last week was disordered worship, this week we'll see disordered desires. And isn't that what happens? It begins with disordered worship, and then it leads to disordered desires. Here's what John Stott said. He said, the history of the world confirms that idolatry tends to immorality. A false image of God leads to a false understanding of sex. So the passage we're studying today, I want to warn some of you parents, if you've got younger kids and you haven't had some of this talk yet, this might be a good time to just dismiss yourself and have a nice little brisk walk. It's a little warm, but have a walk this morning because we're going to get into some very adult content today. This is so dreadful, quote, Charles Spurgeon considered this text we're reading today so dreadful, he didn't even endorse reading it publicly at church. He said, read it at home. <laughs> it's that dreadful. Uh, we did read it, and we are going to study it. And so we're going to see three things in our text together today. If you're taking note, I'd love for you to jot these three things down. We're going to first see dishonorable passions in verses 26 through 27. We're going to see debased minds in verses 28 through 31. And thus, because of these, we're going to see in, verses, in verse 32, deserve judgment. So let's begin with verse 26, and let's see the final subversion of truth. Notice it says in verse 26, for this reason, here's that phrase again, God gave them up. In this case, it says he gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Please circle that phrase. Contrary to nature. Uh, and the men likewise, in the same manner, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed. The word there in the Greek is, you could say, inflamed or set on fire. They were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, obviously, this particular text is going to be completely contested and even rejected by what are called progressive Christians, or you could say, quote, gay Christians. Uh, and by the way, church, we need to uh, strongly reject progressive Christianity. Okay, I'll die on that hill, and I'll fight that battle, and I'll jump on that bandwagon. We need to come against progressive Christianity because it's not Christianity. Uh, and so what progressive Christians or gay Christians will say is, no, 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 no. <laughs> You, you conservative Christians have it all right. You guys who are fundamental, you look at the Bible and believe it's literal. You're getting it all wrong here. And they would say, listen, Paul is not speaking right in this particular section about sexual ethics or to expose some particular vice. He's, he's writing in general about the wrath of God. And I'd say, okay, I'm kind of with you. I'm following your logic to a point. But see, What's the problem is that they go further and they say, now let's interpret Paul's words in light of today's definitions. And see, folks, that becomes Bible origami. 
We take the Bible and we start folding it and let's make it fit here. And then it's, now it fits in our, our modern context or our postmodern context. So there's really three ways to, to interpret this text that we just read, verses 26 and 27. We talk about homosexuality. There's really one of three ways. Number one, you could interpret it this way, that Paul is referring to men who are in a sexual relationship with young boys. Now, this type of uh, interpretation would say, listen, that's the only type of homosexuality that existed in Rome at that time. Now, that's actually tacitly false, and that's very easy to debunk. Uh, That is what is called pederasty. And I will give a little capitulation here. That was the most primary and most widely accepted form of homosexuality in the Roman Empire, but it wasn't the only form happening in Rome. In fact, when you look at some history of Rome, uh, this is from non-Christian sources. Many rich Roman men had slaves and eunuchs who were not boys uh, that they had sex with. And if that is the entire argument that they're giving, okay, so Paul was just referring to men. Well, then what do we do when we just put our eyes in the text? See, the text answers it. The text simply says that women exchange natural relations with women. So that debunks that whole theory right out of the gate, not just men with young boys. Number two, how do we interpret this? Number two, you could say, well, Paul meant people who identify as heterosexual, who were working against their nature and becoming homosexual. So when they read the word natural here, they would interpret that as meaning, listen, that is a personal, that's a personal uh, nature. So you identify as a heterosexual and you're going against your nature as a heterosexual. And so he's condemning that idea. Uh, However, we have no evidence for that in the text. Uh, When we have it on the contrary, Paul uses the words male and female in the Greek and natural and unnatural do not mean a personal nature, but they mean to go against nature, to go against the created order, the way God has created the world. So listen, we cannot add our modern or postmodern usage of sexual identity and preference right into the text. We can't inject it in here because that type of thinking was totally foreign to the first century. So this does not mean that people who identify as heterosexual started having same-sex attraction and it was against their, the, the way that they were born and so they went against that. No, just as a side note, the, the phrase sexual preference uh, is not an insult. I know lately people, oh, you know, don't insult me and say sexual preference. I actually think it's not strong enough. So people will argue with Christians and say, stop saying my sexuality is a preference. It's my identity. And according to scripture, I would say, you're right. You've made it your identity. God gave you up and then you gave up what was natural to pursue what was unnaturable, unnatural, dishonorable, and something that is filled with shame that deserves judgment. You see, Paul does not mean natural and unnatural in a personal way uh, to just go against a sexuality you were born with. So that means that the third interpretation must be the right one. The third interpretation is that Paul means any form of lesbian or homosexual behavior. This is the most honest and straightforward, if not unpopular, interpretation of the text. Why? Because it's the correct interpretation. And many, for that reason, many people want to reject Paul They want to reject Romans or they want to reconfigure this text in Romans chapter 1. Paul is not condemning a certain kind of homosexuality or lesbianism. He's pointing out this is what happens when you abandon God. 
not even at a personal level, but as a society, when you abandon God, you become inflamed with selfish sensuality, and that runs against the way that God and love created you. David Gusick says it this way. He says, at times the Roman Empire specifically taxed approved homosexual prostitution and gave boy prostitutes a legal holiday. Legal marriage between same-gender couples was recognized, and even some of the emperors married other men. At the very time that Paul wrote this, Nero was emperor. He took a boy named Sporus and had him castrated, then married him with a full ceremony, brought him to the palace with a great procession, and made the boy his wife. Later, Nero lived with another man, and Nero was the wife. You see, Paul is pointing out that when we exchange the truth of God for a lie, the creator for creation, then the obvious next step is to offend the image of God in our own gender identity and sexuality. You see, God in the beginning created us male and female in his image. We were created male and female in the image of God. Now, that does not mean in a blasphemous way that God is male and God is female, Here's what it means. It means that within the Godhead, there exists perfect unity, even in diversity. So God creates male and female to complement one another. And man and women, man and woman fit together sexually, reproductively, naturally, even though man is distinct from woman, and yet they're both equal, just as Father, Son, and Spirit are co-equal and yet distinct. You see, I believe in God's created order, man and woman are given dignity, they're given worth, they're given distinction because they're created in his image. So when we offend the image of God and we erase that, then we have to manufacture dignity and worth and distinction. And so gender now becomes a construct and it becomes divorced from sex. So now gender is whatever you feel, whatever you want to create for yourself. And then now we have to try to find dignity, worth, and distinction in a variety of genders. And then there's new names we give to binary people who believe in the Bible. And it just becomes a hot mess where we try to kind of fashion a man in our own image. And one of the biggest, uh, most popular arguments against what we're saying here in, in the scripture uh, is that um, homosexuals or lesbians are just born that way. Uh, and even Lady Gaga has a song. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born that way. Uh, and, and so people say, quit telling me that I, this is a choice. I can't choose any other way. I was born that way. Uh, well, let's investigate just real quick uh, a text from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now look at this list. He says, Neither the sexually immoral, that's the word porneia, where we get the word pornography from, the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, so that's in the list, nor, right next to it, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now notice this next sentence. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Consider that phrase, and such were some of you. Notice Paul doesn't say, you weren't born that way. Actually, on the contrary, he says, you kind of were born that way. You were born, and you, in your natural, unregenerate, dead, in, you know, before Christ state, you were an adulterer. You were immoral. You were homosexual. 
In fact, in John chapter 3, Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be born again, not physically, but spiritually. So I could say before Christ, as a husband, I was sexually immoral before Christ as a man. Husbands, you can look at your past before Christ and say, I too was a person who was a reviler. I was a drunkard. I was greedy. I was a thief. And so we could say, ultimately, yeah, we were born into sin. So that conversation's irrelevant. Such were some of you, but I was washed. I was sanctified. I was justified. And now I'm new. And so it doesn't matter what I was before. I now have a new identity. And thus I have uh, new desires. Now, why does homosexuality seem to be highlighted here in this text? Above or against, over against the other vile sins that Paul's about to list. Why? Because it's the penultimate example of a debased mind that has fully rejected the image of God in our gender identity and sexuality. We kind of get pulled into this losing argument that says, listen, no, 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 homosexuality is just like every other sin. But according to Paul, that's not true. It's a sin, and people who are fulfilling their unholy sexual passions are not any more of a sinner than a Christian man who commits adultery on his wife. But it's a sin that, like sexual immorality, carries with it a particular weight. Notice what he says at the end of verse 27. He says, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So Paul may mean here that being delivered over to homosexuality is itself the penalty. That that itself carries with it uh, just an extra sense of penalty and heaviness. Those who, they've done research, those who attempt to live in a committed homosexual relationship find those relationships dissolved three to four times greater than those of heterosexual married couples. In fact, they experience much higher rates of domestic violence than opposite-sex couples do. And a non-Christian journal, it's known as the Journal of Human Sexuality, it concluded with regard to homosexuals that no other group of comparable size in society experiences such intense and widespread pathology. Itself is the penalty. Now, Ray Pritchard says this. He says, it is as if God is pulling back the covers in order to show us how empty our hearts are without him. By turning to illicit sex, instead of fulfilling our dreams, we only expose the emptiness within. It never works out like we hope it will. Immorality never satisfies because it always involves deception. We lie to each other, we lie to ourselves, and ultimately we lie to God. And so this is the kind of the final step. Now, um, we're about to see a sad list. We just read through it. And this list is what marks a person who has been given over to a debased mind. Look at the second section, debased minds. He says in verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, we learned that last week, Uh, And earlier, there's a lack of acknowledgement. So because of that, God, here it is again, gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is not man in his freedom pursuing his sinfulness. No, this is God letting go of a boat that is being pulled downstream to destruction. And previously, God was holding the rope and not allowing the boat to go downstream, but he kind of lets go. In fact, not only does he let go, he gives it a little push downstream. See, we've now seen God giving up the unregenerate over to three things. We saw back in verse 24 last week that God gave them up 
in the lust of their hearts to, the, to impurity. We saw here in verse 26, he gave them up to dishonorable passions. And right here in verse 28, he, quote, gave them up to a debased mind. Now, would you guys circle, highlight, underline that word debased? Debased. In the King James Version, this is the word deplorable, and I kind of like that. It has a little more weight to it. We don't use the word deplorable nowadays, or actually it's the word reprobate, sorry. Uh, reprobate, and we don't use that word a lot today. Um, and reprobate or debased means in the Greek something that has not stood the test. So the Romans would use this word in a transaction if you brought a coin to them, and the coin was, quote, below standard. So you go to hand in this coin, and they look at it, and they go, I can't really see the emperor's inscription here. This coin is debased. It is now below standard. It's unacceptable anymore. And so the idea is that, notice, that man did not approve to know God, then God allowed them now to be turned over to have an unapproved mind. So the unbeliever who suppresses the truth of God for a lie and who worships and serves the creation rather than the creator, listen, they're not the intellectual superior, no matter how much they boast of their degrees or how many TED Talks they've watched. Their mind is now below standard. And simultaneously, their mind has both been emptied and it's been filled. So it's been emptied. It's been drained out of all truth and all wisdom and all holiness and all purity. It's been drained out. It's been emptied, which leaves a lot of room for it to be filled up. And it's been filled up with spiritual sludge that sinks it down, drags it over the edge into a pit of degradation. So the debased mind simultaneously is empty. It's empty of truth. It's empty of wisdom. It's empty of God. And yet at the same time, it's filled with these evils. Notice what he says. He says in verse 29, they were filled. Their mind was filled with all manner. That's our title today. All manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Here it is again. They are full. Full of what? Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Now, here we have a list of 21, maybe you're keeping count, 21 vices. And commentators all agree, or mostly agree, Paul wasn't trying to list these out in perfectly neat categories. Some of you have the brain that's like a spreadsheet. And so you're like, oh, I wanted to categorize these sins in neat little tidy categories. Um, that isn't the case. But you do find a few things interesting here. First of all, I think, I think it's interesting that you find what I call socially acceptable sins right alongside these socially unacceptable sins. So things that, hey, hey, men, we don't mind confessing this tomorrow night with some other men. Like, oh, uh, pray for my covetous heart. We don't mind that. Oh, I've been a little greedy lately. Uh, pray that I stop having envy. I see guys driving a Tesla and I'm coveting. All right, those are a little bit easier to confess in a men's group. But he mentions those right alongside the unacceptable sins like murder and malice. These are things we would not just say like, oh, it's okay, brother. We'll pray for you. It's like, oh, we need to talk to the pastors immediately. So I find that interesting. But secondly, you learn as you read this that there's a lot on this list that relates to other people. So things like envy and strife and deceit and gossip and slander. They relate to other people, sinning against others. But they also relate to God. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, and in inventing, making up ways to do evil. I find that interesting. I also find it interesting 
that these people seem to lack a few things. Notice that the children lack obedience, um, that they are lacking wisdom, they're foolish. They're lacking faith, they're faithless. They lack love, they're heartless. Like a young Boaz, they're ruthless. No, nobody? All right, it'll take you a minute. <laughs> so you just, I'm getting, I'm getting yelled at for dad jokes, and at this point, I'm a dad, so every joke is a dad joke. It's bad. One person translated verse 31 this way, that people lack brains, honor, love, and pity. Uh, so John Piper says this, what's the point? Okay, what's the point of listing all these sins? The point, I think, is to give us enough examples to show that virtually every form of evil has to do with God and comes from failing to know him and approve him and love him above all things. In other words, he gives us a sweeping array of evils to waken us to the fact that the ruin of any area of life is owing to the abandonment of God. We just sang those words of my favorite hymn, Come Thou Fount, and we sang them together. I am, didn't you affirm that in your own heart? You, you relate to that? I am prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Don't you find that as we are wandering from God, we don't get more holy, right? We don't get, we don't get as, I, as I wander away in my relationship with God, we don't get more righteous. We don't draw closer to becoming holy. We become more unholy. And so when we abandon God, we find ourselves going into, even as Christians, even in Christ, falling into some of these categories. And so look at the final idea this morning in verse 32, that this is a deserved judgment. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. In this verse, we see three terrible realities. Would you jot these down? Three terrible realities. Number one, knowledge. Paul says they know. They know they deserve to die. They have witness of their conscience, so they are condemned. This is not ignorance. This is willful transgression. What, what do they know? Well, Paul says they know God's decree that practice doesn't make perfect. You used to hear your mom say that, practice makes perfect. No, Paul says practice makes penalty. If you're going to practice these things, you know that you are storing up wrath for yourself. In fact, the word deserve, that they know that those who practice these things deserve to die. It means to pay the correct amount for something. In other words, to put the appropriate weight on one end of a scale so that it matches the other end. They know that if I sin this way, I deserve judgment. As we'll see next week, God's law has been written on men's hearts. So they know the scales of God's justice are going to weigh more weighty if I live this way. So there's knowledge. But secondly, this is a terrible reality. There's persistence. Even though men and women know better, their conscience eventually becomes seared, and yet they'll just continue. Uh, I don't love the Living Bible paraphrase, but I do like the way it translates or paraphrases this verse. It says, they were fully aware of God's death penalty for these crimes, yet they went right ahead and did them anyway. I read this week about Aaron Burr. Uh, he's been famous uh, through the play known as Hamilton. Uh, Aaron Burr was the third president of the United States, and it turns out that Burr was, was reared in a godly home. He grew up in a godly home, and he was admonished to accept Christ, to receive Christ by his grandfather. Guess who his grandfather was? Jonathan Edwards. 
Jonathan Edwards was his grandfather, and he admonished his grandson to receive Christ, but Burr refused to listen. And what he said was, I want nothing to do with God. I wish the Lord would leave me alone. And so he had political success a little bit. Uh, and of course, when he was involved uh, at 48 years old in a duel with Alexander Hamilton, uh, he obviously killed him. And for 32 more years of his life, uh, it was said that he lived an unproductive, unhappy, and just a dark life till the end of his days. Uh, and it was during that chapter, that sad chapter in his life, that he said this to a group of friends before he died. He said, 60 years ago, I told God if he would let me alone, I would let him alone, and God has not bothered me since. You see, people in our culture today, they know better, and yet they persist. They know they'll be condemned, and yet they persist. But there's one more thing, one more tragic, terrible notion in verse 32, and that is applause. So this is not something that they, this list of sins, is not something they denounce in the daytime, but then sneak away like a hypocrite to indulge their sinful passions. No, they applaud. Yes. They give approval to those who practice this lawlessness. They're not embarrassed by it. They become cheerleaders and exhibitionists who parade folly and condemn God. Now, guys, don't we see that in our culture today? We see that in education. We see that in the arts. We see that in the news, in the courts, in the legislature, and even in the so-called progressive church. Church, this is what we call the bottom. One pastor said this. They said, the bottom is where you are when evil becomes good and good becomes evil, where the wrongdoers are publicly praised even as defenders of morality are reviled, when truth is on the scaffold and wrong is on the throne. That's where we're at today. You and I today are in a place where I would call it the bottom. And something happens naturally when we read a list like this. When we read a list like this, we just stood up a moment ago and read this together. We either hear something like this list and it exposes our own sin. And thus we become convicted and we lean back onto Christ for mercy. Well, Lord, thank you for your grace. I would, without your grace, be in that camp. I'd be a part of this list. Or we read that list and we go, wow, that list is horrible. I am so glad I am not on that list of sinful, despicable people. And we become puffed up with pride. And, and next week, uh, Paul will confront that logic as we open up Romans chapter 2, the first half. So I encourage you uh, this week to read ahead and prepare your hearts as we uh, study Romans chapter 2 by God's grace next week. Um, but how can we apply this, um, this passage of Scripture together um, in a way that equips us for the cultural moment that we live in. Uh, three things I think we can walk away with today. Number one, I want to challenge us to speak with truth and care on the sin of homosexuality. Have you found this to be confusing and difficult today? Am I the only one? This is a challenging time to be a Christian. You see, Christians, we're in new territory today. We no longer have the moral high ground in the society's mind, mind's eye. So when the culture looks at Christians, they no longer think, this is the bastion of love and morality. They now look at the church and go, you guys are, are below the culture. You need to get with the times. You, you're showing up in an old-fashioned, outdated, unloving mindset. They, they look at our perspective and they say, wait a minute, you're supposed to love and include all people. 
Because marriage is just one person who loves another, and you're just supposed to embrace this. Why are you so unloving? Uh, the world is looking at the church today in the midst of a pandemic and saying, why are you meeting in a group of people? That's unloving. You need to stay home and love me. Why are you going when the government's trying to restrict this? How dare you meet? And so the world is looking at the church saying, you've got the moral low ground. The world says, this is my body that's my choice. How dare you tell me what to do? And yet the church looks at 1.2 million babies flushed out of their mother's wombs. 1.2 million in the first 10 days of 2021 alone. And we're supposed to stand idly by and say, your body, your choice, when we see this injustice happening, going unchecked. And yet we're the ones branded as unloving to women, unloving to children, or stuck in the Middle Ages. You see, the strangest thing in my mind today is to look at this list and say, I withstand the evil in this list, and I don't want it to happen on my watch. And the world says, that's unloving. It's the most loving thing we can do, to stand up uh, and to call uh, truth out. We're called hateful, we're called phobic, uh, and yet Paul does not wince. He doesn't lean back. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't say, it's okay. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll just kind of make room for this. Uh, he uh, points this out because this is an evil that destroys what God loves. You see, everyone hates something. You either hate God and you love unrighteousness, or you love God and you hate evil. Now, that doesn't mean we can't speak with care about this sin. It is a sin. So what we don't do is we don't say, well, it's fine. Like, come on in, and you don't need to change anything about that. You don't need to let the Holy Spirit do a work of reformation in your heart and, and to change you from darkness to light. Uh, and you don't need to repent. Just continue on. We'll just affirm you in your sin. No, we need to say it's a sin. But yeah, we need to speak with truth and care on this uh, subject. And so what we need to do is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.20. What should your posture be as a Christian? It should not be silence. Uh, I don't want to say anything. I, don't wanna, I have gay and lesbian friends. I don't want to upset them. Uh, I'm not saying we come at them. Like, I'm going to message them now this text. I'm going to tell them how horrible they are. No, the idea is that we say, listen, I too, apart from Christ, was on that list in 1 Corinthians 6. But I was washed and I was sanctified. I was justified. So we do what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.20. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We challenge people not to, not to couch them and comfort them in their sin, but to, uh, to uh, mortify their sin, to put it to death. So may we speak with truth and care in these very difficult days. If you're a young person and you're, you've got friends, I'm not telling you to stop being friends with homosexuals. I'm not telling you that. If you've got friends who are, who are, are confused about their gender, they're confused about sexuality, I'm not telling you to make fun of them and drop the Mr. Potato Head versus Miss, Mrs. Potato and make fun of people. That's not what we're about. We need to speak with truth and care. Build that friendship, but don't be ashamed to preach the gospel. Amen. Secondly, this is a little more of a general idea for us in our culture. May we not overlook the here and now wrath of God. You see, sometimes we think that God's wrath only means future, as if going to hell. And that's not wrong. There is a future eschatological judgment that we know as the lake of fire or Hades or hell, whatever phrase we use, there's a future judgment, right? But let's not overlook the here and now judgment. You see, the world is not headed for judgment. We are already under judgment. The fact that we live in a culture where men have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and have now been given over to corruption means we are seeing the wrath of God poured out today against unrighteousness. 
Doug Wilson paints the picture this way, and this should convict us all. Suppose there was a nation awash in consumer goods, a nation that gained the world but which lost its own soul. Suppose that nation cut off its future by slaughtering over 40 million of her own citizens. Suppose further that this was urged as a noble and constitutional thing to do. Suppose that this nation began to sanctify sodomite marriages and laughed at every form of righteousness. Suppose that there were millions of Christians in this country who longed for America to deliver herself by returning to her noble, true self instead of longing for Christ to save her from her corrupted, wicked self. Wow. Let's stop pretending or wondering, oh, I hope America doesn't face God's judgment. Folks, we are already under the judgment of God. God's future eschatological judgment certainly looms for all who descended from Adam who have not been bought by the blood of Christ. But today, we're also experiencing his wrath upon a culture that's like a doomed aircraft heading for utter destruction. So thirdly, let's make it more personal now. May we see our own iniquity in this list. Anyone who reads this and thinks, man, I am so glad that I am not like these sinners. I am a Christian. I tithe. I brush my teeth. I even floss every day. What did Jeff Foxworthy used to say? You might be a redneck. Okay, you might be a Pharisee. (laughs) If you read this list and you go, I'm so glad I'm not in it, you might be a Pharisee. So reading this should not make us more angry at the world out there and the evil out there. Listen, this list should make us more grateful for the grace of God in saving a wretch like you and me. You see, Paul would say, and I would contest Paul, in heaven, I'm going to contest him. You're the chief of sinners, Paul? Dude, I've got one up on you. Uh, I grew up in a culture that had tons of Bible translations. You only had scrolls. I'm, a chief, I'm the chief of sinners. I'll, argue, I'll, I'll arm wrestle you for that one, Paul. See, you and I have made those sinners out there look like freshmen. Guys, was it that long ago that you and I were filled with all manner of unrighteousness? Do you remember when you and I before Christ, everyone in this room could be labeled as a gossip, a slanderer, a hater of God, haughty and insolent? Anyone here have a mom or dad? Raise your hand. You had a mom or dad? Well, we were all disobedient to our parents. We were foolish. We were faithless. We were heartless. And we were ruthless. John MacArthur says this, I love this illustration. He says, A certain species of ants in Africa builds its nests in deep subterranean tunnels where its young and its queen live. Although they may be great distances from the nest foraging for food, worker ants of that species are able to sense when the queen is being molested and they become extremely nervous and coordinated. If she is killed, they become frantic and rush around aimlessly until they die. What better illustration could there be of fallen man? Even in his sinful rejection and rebellion, he cannot function properly apart from God and is destined only for death. Folks, that's the world that we live in today. And so we praise God this morning for the glory and the grace of God expressed to us in his kindness in Christ. You and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, and yet he made us alive with Christ and he has raised us up with him. So this morning, we can declare and sing with joy in our hearts with a smile on our face that apart from the grace of God, so would we go. This morning, as we close, we're going to sing a familiar hymn. And these words bring great comfort even in darkness that we live in today. And the words of the hymn go this way. 
when, dark, or when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. Jesus made an end to all of our sin. We were these things, but we were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified by faith in Jesus Christ. So now when we stand before the throne of God above, we will not hear condemned, but we'll hear righteous. We won't be pronounced guilty. You'll be declared godly. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. And now, even though you are sinful, you are counted free. So church, may we this morning together now stand in glorious gratitude as we know that God in his grace has saved wretches like you and wretches like me. And let's thank him for that this morning. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your great grace. We love you. We worship you. And Lord, we thank you that even in this difficult text, we realize that the grace of God is on display, set against the backdrop of wicked, depraved evil. Lord, thank you that you pulled us out and saved us and made us alive. And Lord, now you've given us a voice. May we declare with boldness, not to shrink back, not to stay silent, uh, not to be pugnacious, but to point out uh, the love and the grace and the truth of God in a dark and needy time. Lord, help us, to have, um, help us to have boldness in our vocal cords to proclaim evil and truth. Lord, not that we're looking down on anyone because, Lord, you have saved us out of um, our own sinfulness. But, Lord, that we would be able to, um, like it says in some quotes, I'm just a, a blind beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. May we be willing to point people to the truth today and not shrink back. Lord, thank you for saving us. And as we stand before your throne, we stand before you uh, not guilty because of Christ. So we glory in that truth today in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.